welcome back to another episode of Debatable with your hosts, Nina and Kyle. I'm Nina. I'm Kyle. And happy related International Women's Day. So this is an important day for a lot of people, a lot of women. Well, I hope all women, but most women, I would say it's an important day for them. And the reason why we're having this episode is because there are a lot of debates on feminism that have never stopped throughout all the years. Yet, discussions seem to have diluted throughout the years because of lack of awareness or like people not knowing where we are and what the battles women currently facing are, you know? Yeah, uh, so you have cases like hashtag MeToo, you have Time's Up, you have so many new developments in feminism, but I feel like what we can contribute as, you know, kind of older debaters is to talk about the history of like the feminist movement because when the feminist movement first started actually um it was said that historically men have been oppressing women so if the patriarchy is a creature of history then it must follow that it can be defeated with more understanding of history as well so with that we can move on to a discussion about feminism about like the different waves of feminism we always hear about like you know the first second third there's a fourth wave it's a bit debatable i think we're gonna talk about all those things so beginning with the first one um this is all about political rights it started in the 1800s in america and it continued until the 1920s but i would say it also continued until 2005 or 2015 sorry especially since the first political movement was driven by the suffragettes in 19th century to 20th century, and women worldwide were fighting for their right to vote and partake in political decisions for the country and for themselves. So New Zealand was the first country to ever grant the right to vote, at least from my research. And then in 1902, Australia became the second country. Of course, this was limited and indigenous Australians were not given the right to vote, but that's a different like, discussion for a different time. And then in the US, it was 1920s. And then in 2015, Saudi Arabia became the last country to grant women the right to vote, um, excluding Vatican City, because that is also a debatable area. And we're not going to delve into that one. <laughs> You know, even the fact of there being a country is in, is in itself debatable. Like, is Vatican even a country? Yeah. That's quite debatable. Like, it's not even a member of the United Nations. It was just like an observer until recently. But anyway, anyway. I think what's clear there is even though majority of, you know, the books about feminist history is about like the first wave of feminism happened from this time to this time, that's not really an accurate depiction of what really the first wave was all about. Because different societies are still in various stages of feminism. Mm -hmm. So it's been said that in many countries, you know, there's a fourth wave of feminism again. But in other countries, you still might be in the second or the third waves. And by the way, the first wave of feminism isn't just the right to vote. It's political and economic rights. So it's also the right to get a job, for example. So a lot of countries are still technically within the first wave. They haven't gotten all the necessary victories to get to the second wave um and what's interesting to me is when the first wave began it began with in the united states at least a lot of people say it began with 
something called the Declaration of Sentiments. So what happened there was a bunch of women came together and they wrote like a very long list of like complaints about how they are being treated in society. Like we're not allowed to vote, we're not allowed to get education, we're not allowed to get this and that and that. And they were they patterned it after the Declaration of Independence. Because like that's the reason why they call it the Declaration of Sentiments. It's a pun, right? Mm-hmm. But unlike the Declaration of Independence, which everyone at the time celebrated a lot, the Declaration of Sentiments was just basically laughed at for a really long time until they got a lot of victories that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, so the first wave is, I guess people assume we're already through this hurdle. And I would agree, a lot of countries have probably passed this hurdle. But we should not disregard the fact that discussions about political and economic rights still extend up to like the movements and waves that we are currently in. But I guess we'll discuss that more later. Um, now we'll talk about the second wave, which is more about equality. So now that we are done, for example, or most countries have achieved political and economic rights, it's about maximizing that to achieve equality of the sexes. And this was prominent around the 1950s to the 1970s. So with the right to vote one, feminists gradually turned their attention to women's equality on a wider scale. So you had books like The Feminine Mystique, published in 1963, or The Second Sex, published in 1949, or The female eunuch in 1970 and these were books that basically pioneered discussions on the relationship of men with women and the sort of leverage men had over women at the time and why women deserved to be on equal footing with men so this was majority of the discussion during this particular wave yeah so those three books that you're talking about um so betty friedman um simone de beauvoir they all dealt with the sexual repression of women um, and how they are forced into marriage, into motherhood, etc. So the first book that you talked about, The Feminine Mystique, it was actually referring to how society was telling women that they can just be happy by being mothers, you know, being in the kitchen, raising kids. The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir was dealing partly about how actually the condition of women today, or at least at her time, was a result of sexual slavery as a result of marriage and motherhood where the patriarchy tied the worth of a woman to her body and her biological functions. Um, So in a sense, they were compared to animals because of that and how this thinking prevented women from being able to work. So this was actually the opposite view of um, Frederick Engels, who you might know as one of you know, Karl Marx's partners and mm-hmm, writing the mm-hmm. manifesto because Engels was saying that women's repression started with the birth of capitalism. But actually, Simone de Beauvoir was saying that it started even before capitalism was a thing. It actually started when men started tying the worths of women to their bodies and their ability to become mothers. Um, the female eunuch was interesting. Its approach was interesting because it says... Yeah, the patriarchy sees women as objects to make babies with, but the patriarchy also expects women to repress their sexuality and turning them into eunuchs. So these ideas came about because even after they got the right to vote, which was a legal victory and all the other 
um, political rights, those are legal victories, it didn't lead to a cultural change just yet. So you had a lot of men saying, no, sure, you have the right to vote, but it doesn't mean that you should vote. They say, you can work, but we're going to pay you less because we don't think that you should work. Um, so that's where second wave feminism says, okay, it's not just about equal rights, but it's about actual cultural equality as well. So a woman should be defined by motherhood, beauty, etc. So one of the most important mobilizations in the second wave was in 1968 when feminists protested Miss America, you know, the pageant. They brought bras to signify how the patriarchy was literally restricting their bodies. It was a very powerful symbol. But that's actually where you get the stereotype that feminists burn their bras, their bra burners. Because even though they weren't really bra burners, like it was illegal for you to burn a bra, what they actually did was just they, they got, you know, sexy magazines and threw them into like a trash can or something. That's a myth. But you know, it, it's, it, it got stuck. Like that's how a lot of people to this day still view feminism. It's because of what a lot of people perceive to be the failings of the second wave. But despite all the perceived failings, the second wave did achieve a lot of victories for feminists. So include major victories in the U.S., including the Equal Pay Act and the act that allowed them to get like access to quality education. Because imagine the education before the second wave was probably just very centered on motherhood, how to take care of your husband and your children and your family, how to sew but actual quality education was only provided because people fought for it during the second wave. Abortion rights were also granted to UK women in 1967 and some Australian states in 1969. And the monumental 1973, like Roe versus Wade, I think everyone should know this or you should read up on it, basically brought abortion rights to the forefront. This is still debatable to some, especially now, again, where there are debates about, at least not, not in our community, but there are debates existent all around the world about overturning Roe versus Wade. Um, but that's more legal legalese that I will not get into, unless Kyle wants to talk about it a little bit. 100%, it's just legalese. <laughs> because in, in America, what happened was individual states could legalize abortion on their own but what roe versus wade did was to say that across the board no matter what state you live in you should be able to have the right to abort and that's the reason why a lot of conservatives are saying we should overturn it because you have to protect states rights so it's still like a state's rights versus a federal thing rather than like should women have the right to do this it's more of like it's states rights just in a way like you justify the civil war by saying it's not about slavery, it's about state rights. As It's the same thing. It's just like a different like issue, it's different clothing, but it's the same excuses still being used. But anyway, the second wave in this way brought discussions about class and racial divides within the movement. Uh, the movement wasn't exactly intersectional just yet. And actually, you can argue that even until today, it's not as intersectional as we would like. But... At least at this time, there were now conversations about, you know, integrating more women of color into the story of feminism. But eventually, as I said, there would be backlash. So bra burning, even though it's a myth, it created backlash. The rallies in general created backlash. This is where you got the idea that feminists were men-haters. And by the 80s, the conservativeness 
conservatism of Ronald Reagan in the United States and also Margaret Thatcher in the UK, they successfully positioned feminists as humorless. They probably have hair on their legs, their shrews. They protest in order to distract themselves because they're so ugly no one would love them. So a lot of people, even women, rejected the term feminism. And even today, a lot of people still reject that term because they think that, you know, you see a lot of women against feminism, they say, I am not a feminist because I love men or something like that. Yeah. So a lot of people now call themselves equalists, which is very Cora of them. But, you know, whatever. That's a discussion for another time. Which brings us, I guess, to the discussion of third wave feminism. So first wave was about political rights. Second wave was about equality. The third wave is actually about empowerment. So the third wave feminists felt like the first and second wave feminists were not doing the best of their jobs in granting quote-unquote true liberation because they were still abiding to certain set of rules of what women should do and what women shouldn't do. For example, you had to position yourself like a masculine person in order to be equal to men. Like it's bad if you choose to be a housewife, for example. And these were things that were all challenged during the third wave, uh, during the time of empowerment. So this was fueled by the new economic and social growth that feminists felt were happening and were possible for them at the time. So this actually, or one of the main groups that inspired third wave feminism was called the Third Wave Direction Action Corporation. It was organized in 1992 um, and... It became what it is now, mostly in 1997, it was called the Third Wave Foundation. And it was dedicated to supporting, quote-unquote, groups and individuals working towards gender, racial, economic, and social justice. So off the bat, you can now see that intersectionality was now in the fold. It was now part of the discussion. If Kyle mentioned earlier that it was introduced as a concept, intersectionality took center stage or at least it took a part of the stage in the third wave feminism discussion yeah you could argue that it's still not taking center stage but i guess we'll talk about that later because that's a big issue in Mm -hmm. contemporary you know debates about feminism but it was at this point where you see like a decided shift in perceptions of gender with the notion that There are some characteristics that are inherently masculine and inherently feminine. The feminist movement started challenging those things. Um, So when I was taught about the third wave of feminism way back, I keep saying this every episode, like when I was much younger, uh, I remember that that was one of the first um, sessions we had. I was asking about what the third wave of feminism was because I understood like the first wave, voting, the second wave, equality. I was told that the third wave was all about postmodernism, and I was like, "What the hell does postmodernism mm-hmm. mean?" Um, to which my coach replied that, "Well, you see this, you see this table. What if it's not a table? What if it's actually a chair?" And I was like, "Hmm, okay. I want to seem smart, like I get it." So I said, "Yeah, that's, yeah, I get it." Mm-hmm. But it was only like years later where <laughs> I was like. Oh, okay, it's because we have like preconceived notions of what a table should be. Just like how we have preconceived notions of what a woman should be, right? Um, so I think that before the first wave, a woman 
was said that it's only this kind of person who gets to be a woman or a woman is only a good woman if she does this certain thing. Second wave, it was about the working women. The third wave was a response to the backlash from the second wave. So now this is where you see women going like, well, I'm happy being a wife or a mother, etc. That's why I reject feminism. So third wave feminism was trying to correct that by saying, well, as long as it's your choice and you feel empowered in that choice, then we can say that, you know, we we're, you're still part of us, right? So it's about your choices. There's no single idea of womanhood, no single idea of a table or a chair or whatever. Yeah, and I guess this extends as well to the expression of your sexual identity. Because a lot of people were saying, well, we like being um, under men or we like being... I, I don't want to say ra- raunchy terms, but you know, like they, they like being used by men or whatever. And this part of the movement or this wave in the movement said, that's fine. So in expressing their concerns, third wave feminists actively subverted, co-opted, and played on seemingly sexist images and symbols. So slang that used to be derogatory, they turned it around, reclaimed those, and started using them to empower themselves. So the terms like slut or whore or bitch, like I say them loosely now, especially because of the third wave feminists and their ability to turn these terms around and make them no longer sting as much as they probably would have if I was in, I don't know, high school, right? But of course, there are downsides to this. This is still debatable. At least when I was in high school, there was there were a lot of debates about reclaiming narratives. And I think even in college, Kyle, when we were in college, we had to debate about reclaiming terms, right? So you could see that this part of it is still debatable, but a lot of third-wave feminists would say that this was an important part of it and an important milestone in reaching true liberation and empowerment for their own sex. Um, the Vagina Monologues was one important book that was published around this time that also talked about women's sexuality and the role of women in society. And I remember reading this back in high school and I never truly appreciated it until uh, I got to college because I realized later on in my life that, well, I'm more than just equal to men. I am also someone who has sexual desires. I am also a person who should not be ashamed of the thoughts I have that are masculine or assigned to men in nature, right? So these are things that ended up in the forefront or the discussion of sex and empowerment and doing girly things, I feel, were things that third wave feminists actively put on the table that previous waves did not. Yeah, so it, it was very nice that you talked about the vagina monologues because we, I remember having that book in my house when I was a kid. I haven't seen it since. Like, I, I asked my mother, did we have the, a copy of the vagina monologues when I was younger? And then she's like, yeah, it's still here somewhere, but I've never seen it. I've only seen it once. I felt like it was a dream or something. But I remember I was in third grade, I read it, and felt very weird because I, I grew up in a Catholic school. Mm-hmm. My mother is very conservative. And I always thought that, you know, sex was something that we should just not talk about. This one time, I I said that word. 
man, I, I'm still bummed out about it. I can't say it, but it's like the Filipino word for vagina in class in third grade. And then someone snitched on me, so I got into trouble. So until now, I have trouble saying that word. <laughs> That's so cute. That's so yeah, cute. Yeah, but, but anyway, for me at that time, when I started reading it, it felt like I was doing something very wrong. But when I was reading it, it was... I, I To be fair, I only read the first part. But she was talking about how ashamed she felt by her own sexual organs. And then one of the men that she slept with um, that changed her view on life and sex took the time to kneel down and like admire her organs. I Uh I, I don't know. I want to keep it (laughs) PG-13, but like... She felt very empowered. Like at first she felt shy, but at some point she started feeling empowered by that. So I I can imagine that this is also what women have to go through if they come from very conservative backgrounds. Like they do not know how to feel at some point in time, but they end up realizing that it could be a source of empowerment. Yeah. I think that it's still debatable whether or not we should actually celebrate a lot of these choices because the third wave of feminism was again all about choices but right now there seems to be a debate about whether or not those choices were actually made by them or whether or not they were just adaptations to a patriarchal society which leads us to fourth wave feminism um which apparently started in 2010 since lasting until now it's debatable whether or not it's actually a thing mm-hmm yeah, super debatable if it's an actual thing. So many claim that fourth wave feminism began around 2012 with the focus on sexual harassment, body shaming, and rape culture, and other issues that mostly concern how men have been bad actors in society. So this last wave that we're going to talk about is mostly about accountability. So after empowerment, the next step would be to hold people accountable for the fact that they were limiting our ability to be empowered in the first place. So most of this wave deals or talks about the problem of most people and most of the world, men. Oh, you know? thanks. Mm-mm. I meant like, that. I meant that. <laughs> you wrote that in the script and I was just like, okay, great, thanks. But I think it's really interesting here because I, we were alive when this started happening. Like We have students that weren't alive when this actually happened. So like... I feel like we're talking about history at this point, but if you can remember Gamergate, this was one of the catalysts for, you know, this movement. Because I was, okay, this is something I have never told you. I was actually on 4chan. Mm -hmm. I wasn't part of, like, the Gamergate controversy, but I was on 4chan when this happened. Um, Gamergate was basically saying that, you know, women do not have the right to talk about games or especially in game journalism because they're not really real gamers so a lot of people say that this is a manifestation of like a men's rights movement so for a lot of men they believed that video games and the community surrounding it were spaces that were just for them so when they felt like their territories were getting attacked by gamer girls they were like mm-hmm. no there's no such thing as a gamer girl so it was like a meninism kind of thing um, Gamergate was saying it was to promote ethics in video game journalism, but really it was just harassment. It was straight up harassment 
against social justice warriors who ended up objecting to female stereotypes in video games. You know, where you get really high stats in armor and then you wear it and it's just like literally a, a thong yeah. or a bikini or something. Mm-hmm, they were protesting mm-hmm. how unrealistic and, you know, damaging that could be. And then there's like, shut up. We don't need to, we need to be ethical. So shut the fuck up. Oops, I need to bleep that out. Damn it. I said another bad word. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so a lot of them actually ended up getting death threats and rape threats. So this is where a lot of our conversations about our implicit biases come in. Basically, Gamergate, that controversy walked so Me Too could run. But all of it is part of the same systematic problem of, you know, a rape culture that just doesn't seem to know when to quit. Yeah, yeah. I think every girl has faced this rape culture at least once in their life in different degrees whether it's an implicit degree or very explicit degree it's not a pleasant experience at all which is why around 2017 the rise of me too took place me too has been a hashtag or has been a movement that has existed since 2006 2006 yeah and it's only been in 2017 that it actually really ran as a movement on its own because of Harvey Weinstein. And if you don't know about that issue, we really recommend you read up on on it, read up about Me Too. But basically, it was about holding men accountable and showing the world that we are also victims. Like, you know someone who got raped or you know someone who got harassed? Well, Me Too. Almost everyone has experiences like that. And it's something you you as a man have to deal with. You as a man have to be accountable for, etc. Even if you're not part of the people who explicitly participate in rape or even the culture of rape and catcalling, if you are not acting now or doing anything about it, then you are complicit to a degree because you tolerate the existence of men who do worse things than you. Right? So a key component of fourth wave feminism is also the use of the online sphere to get their message across. So this Me Too hashtag became such a big deal because it was the first time that a lot of these grievances were visible at such a large scale. Like, sure, there were protests, but it wasn't global. Unlike Me Too, which happened everywhere simultaneously, and in everyone's faces because they were just in social media for everyone's consumption. So it was also therefore riddled with discourse with a lot of people trying to denounce the term feminism altogether because, you know, with Me Too, it felt like you're just pitting women against men. So that controversy back in the second wave that we talked about earlier, it came back. And it came back stronger than ever, especially since Meninist also had the internet to their advantage the same way feminists had it to their advantage so chaos ensued i would say the fourth wave is rather chaotic where it stands because if it's about holding people accountable it also is about holding women accountable for their own patriarchal views or their own tendencies to participate in rape culture as well yeah that's why you have a lot of meninists who say that well women objectify men just as much like and one of the staples of that is they give like screenshots of women objectifying men on Facebook or something, calling them hot. Or um, they also tend to post videos on Twitter of like sexual harassment that's done by women. And like 
I think if you're a feminist, you should also say that, look, we're we're not saying that this is okay either. Like this is also not mm-hmm. something that's good. Um, but at the same time, it's still different because, and this is the argument for you know, men are trash, which I think is part of the backlash thing. Um, is that even though for sure there are some women who are doing bad things, they are not supported by a system, like be it in government or in culture or whatever, they're not supported by a system that condones their behavior. Mm -hmm. Which is why if you're a woman and you do things that would be sexually harassy, people actually bat an eye. People say that that's not how a woman should act. But if a man does the same thing, people will say, well, boys will be boys. So it's still different. Even if we're talking about like women who do bad things, like sexually harass men in public as well, at least no one says, literally no one says that it's something that women or anybody should be doing. But for men, that is actively encouraged by a lot of people in, in our society. And that's like a big issue. And that's the reason why all men are trash you know it's not it's not the fact that you might not personally be doing something that's bad but you are part of a system that's benefiting from um the actions of others and the subjugation of women there are a lot of debatable parts of this fourth wave no for example i think your whole men are trash thing and the issues around it kind of bleed into the issues of optics as well for example, there's also the issue of how women should address the point of accountability, like how to hold men accountable. Like people say, oh, you're too aggressive. You're too bitchy about it. Yeah, sorry, bleep that out. But you're, you're you too know, I'm much gonna of give a up. Sassy. I'm going to give up on that. <laughs> we'll just label this as explicit or something. <laughs> but basically, yeah, like people say that women are too aggressive in their fight. And that's why they get labeled jokingly as social justice warriors which has been like a derogatory term in these days right so what are your thoughts on it do you think aggression is justified well i think it might be justified whether or not it's effective that remains to be seen mm. in my opinion it it's probably effective like in my opinion it's effective i don't think that there's a shortage of women who are willing to explain these issues to men you know but i also understand that why does it have to be the burden of women to explain you know be a decent person right shouldn't it it be like so i understand this so whenever someone talks about like this debate is about you know when they go low we go high that is kind of debatable as well because why do the good guys quote-unquote good guys always have to be the accommodating ones why can't they ever feel outraged and i i feel like it's perfectly justified you can't blame anyone for being angry but you have to realize that there's a trade-off that some people will get turned off by this the question now is is it worth it like is being genuine to what you actually feel worth the potential like alienation of certain kinds of people but on the other hand you can also argue that it's actually because people are being so genuine that people gravitate towards you know supporting these women so 
I don't really have a stance on it because I don't think that like whenever I you know debate I always act like I have a stance on it but in reality I'm a bit more conservative with you know deciding on whether or not things are effective sometimes I just like but where's the data first so right now I think that whatever lets women you know be true to themselves the most that's what I'm celebrating but if it would be more effective in the long run for the feminist movement as a whole to say we should not be you know this aggressive because like we would get more political victories and cultural victories if we become less aggressive then that i might change my mind yeah that's fair that's fair i also don't seem to have a stance here or my stance is that it depends which is such a vague and soft stance Because in reality, I do think it depends on the context. It depends on the situation. Like sometimes as a woman, I use aggression. Sometimes I don't. Like there are instances I leave things be or I deal with it subtly. And there are other times where I just really blow up, right? Um, It also depends on the day, I would say. Um, If I'm really having a bad day and that was the final straw, then you'd expect I would blow up and I'd say it's justified given all the catcalling that I face. Like, did you know I just walked out of my house to go to the mall and buy my medicine? And the moment I stepped out of my condo area and the gate of the condo, I was catcalled by someone from the jeep and they told me basically to suck their thing. And I'm like, you can't even see my mouth. You can't even see my face. I'm wearing a face mask and a face shield and everything. But I still get catcalled. So, like, I just gave up. Like, I could have been angry, but I gave up. And sometimes it's just so tiring to always be fighting and always be aggressive. So I guess that's also a cost that women have to take into consideration. Like, is it worth your efforts? Are there going to be changes if you do use aggression? Sometimes no. And therefore, you shouldn't I know you don't have the obligation to always take the high road, but you don't have the obligation to always take the low road either, right? So it's it depends on you, and it should always be your decision. But so you know, w- yeah. So would you say that sometimes the only winning move is not to play? Sometimes the only winning move is really not to play. Like if you, for example, are dealing with too much and you can opt out of it, and not have to face it or confront it at all, and you think that's better for your mental well-being, then go for it, you know? No one's gonna stop you. I think as a woman, you've faced enough, and you're justified in choosing whatever you want to do. But, you know, that's a very third-wave feminist mindset. Uh, Fourth-wavers would probably say, no, you gotta hold these people accountable, or else they're never gonna change. A good argument, actually, of fourth wave feminist would be to say if you don't call them out now you are just allowing some other woman to be harmed in the long run right if i don't stop this predator now sure i get to escape but i'm just allowing them to be a predator towards someone else so that's also debatable another debatable part and what i wanted to raise actually was i found it interesting that you don't have a stance because it also brings me to the issue of how much say should men even have in the movement like i know you're an ally but really should your opinions matter at all <laughs> <laughs> definitely definitely I, I i think that's part of the reason why i'm very hesitant to take a stance mm. because i don't actually feel these things 
So when you're asking me like, what's your stance on this? I I don't really know. I don't have like enough information. And e- like even if I get data, I, I just said like if I get data, I might change my mind. I still wouldn't say that that is the correct thing to believe because I can just read papers or read newspaper articles every single day for the rest of my life, but I still wouldn't be able to, you know, replicate the first-hand subjective experience of what it's like to be a woman living in today's society. So that's the reason why I'm so hesitant. But 100%, it's super debatable. Um, Should men, even allies, be allowed to influence the direction of the movement? I think that we shouldn't. Like, this is, I actually do have a personal stance here. I don't think that we should be able to influence the direction because, like, it's true, feminism does affect everyone, including me as a man. Um, so, for example, like, we were talking about stereotypes, what it means to be a man, um, the he for she movement, those kinds of things. So, it really does affect men. But you have to look at the extents here right so even if it does affect me somehow indirectly it directly affects women today which is why i think that they should have the most say yeah that's fair that's fair uh i think it also also boils down to now like what narratives end up existing right if men get involved too much does it really change what we prioritize i probably i think it probably does right I think women, for example, will be less able to speak out their true opinions if they're concerned about how men will feel about it. Like, there are times, like, no offense, Kyle, like, I feel like I also have to filter myself because general statements might also feel like an attack to you personally, even if you, I don't mean it. Like, basically, if I, I go more specific into men are trash, I fear that men I talk to will end up feeling personally attacked by whatever statement I hold, even if it doesn't necessarily apply to them, just kind of tangentially, you know? Yeah, I mean, I get that. We were talking about this before, uh, because I would get offended and my my feelings would get hurt. Not Siguro offended, but I'd get hurt sometimes and you criticize um, people in certain ways because I feel like it's about me. And then you always tell me like, well, it's not about you, Kyle. Like maybe it, <laughs> it maybe it should be if you're reacting this way. Um, so I I recognize that that that's a flaw that I have, um, and it might be something that you know the patriarchy I don't know has like imbibed in me that somehow any attack on traditionally masculine behaviors should be construed as personal attacks as well. But considering that we're talking about narratives and who should we listen to, maybe we should also talk about um, intersectionality and women of color. Because, Mm. and and I flagged this earlier, we weren't really able to talk about it so far. Um, But did you know the first wave of feminism, a lot of um, feminists in the first wave were actually people of color. But they actually refused to talk about racial issues and for the reason for that is it's kind of difficult to talk about those issues then because they were already fighting an uphill battle to get rights for women so if they included race into it it would have it would have been much harder for them but today you know things have gotten relatively better for women but for women of color 
it's not as good. So there are lots of people saying that, well, there's a, such a thing called white feminism. Most of the victories of the feminist movement have been centered around the experiences of white women at the expense of women of color. And the argument here is, the argument here is, women of color have always been told that they should just wait, like the benefits would trickle down to them. But there are cases, really, that just white women do not really experience. Mm-hmm. This so is it doesn't where... trickle down to them, yeah. Yeah, this is intersectionality at its best. I think this is mostly third-wave feminism. But, of course, the issues still persist until fourth-wave, especially since a lot of people get to talk about it now, given the social media age and the online sphere that everyone's on. So it's nice to have these conversations happening again. I think, for example, being a Filipino woman is very different from being a woman in the West. And there are probably nuances to my experience and their experience that I'm not aware about as well. So that's interesting. I think another thing about narratives would be, since we're talking about like the things people face and the differences in experience and what they may be going through, there's also this issue, weirdly, that popped up during the fourth wave about whether we should always believe a victim, right? Because there is a tendency for us, especially during the time of cancel culture, which we've also made an episode about, like there's a tendency for us to just instantly pin the blame on someone. Um, And I think it also applies, for example, in rape allegations where we always believe the victim. And like this is a really tricky topic to talk about objectively. Because you don't want to say anything offensive. I don't want to say anything offensive. And I think Kyle is in a more precarious position as a man in this particular situation right now. But (laughs) basically, for example, Amber Heard, if you know about that issue, accused Johnny Depp of being abusive in the relationship. But then it turned out, and it was revealed later on that the, it was actually the reverse, that Amber Heard was the one being abusive in the relationship. So is it good that we always believe the victim? Are you asking me? Because, well, like, I I'm would scared. Like an op- <laughs> um, I would like what something. I can, what I can say for sure is that, you know, if there are false rape accusations or, you know, false accusations about abuse, then it's something that we should frown on. Like, 100%, mm. this shouldn't be debatable. If there's a liar, we Obviously, shouldn't celebrate yeah. the lie. But the question here is, what should be our default stance? Mm. Um, my default stance is believe the victim. Because if they are brave enough to talk about this in public, knowing that people's opinions of them might change, especially in a patriarchal society, then it's most probably true. Although... I can also say that the court, at least our Supreme Court, has done this for a very long time. This is called the Maria Clara Doctrine, which basically says that Filipino women are so shy, so demure, so innocent, that if they raise a rape allegation in open court, it is probably true and we should believe them. So there's a problem here because... On one hand, it is basically believe uh, victims, but it's coming from a very sexist point of view that, you know, just 
women are too shy, they're too demure, they're like Maria Claras, those kinds of things. And a lot of the times, the court goes out of their way to say that, look, the Maria Clara doctrine doesn't apply to, for example, um, prostitutes or sex workers because they are not pure, they're not innocent enough to be believed. So I guess that there's a danger with saying we should just believe um, the purported victim all the time. I think the best thing that we could do is to believe them initially, but always be open to changing your mind when new evidence comes up. Um, so we did this already with Amber Heard. Like, we initially felt very sorry for her, but then when new evidence came up, we were like, okay, we, we are mature enough to change our minds because abuse is something that should never be tolerated regardless of who it is, who does it, and who it's done against. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I would also add that I think that the believe the victim as a default is good unless the reasoning is bad. So if your reasoning is because of structural oppression and the fact that the tendency of women to come out uh, of, you know, and and share their trauma often comes from a place of difficulty, then that's a good reason. But if you're saying that oh, women are demure and whatever else stereotype, then it's bad, right? So I think it's always context-specific. Yeah. So thank you so much for making that clarification because I was worried that someone might hear this out of context and that, what? Kyle from Debatable is saying that we shouldn't believe victims? We're like, no, it's it's more nuanced than that, right? Mm. Like, There has to be a reasoning behind that philosophical stance. But if the reason why you want to believe victims is because you are being sexist, then that's not something that we should be celebrating. Yeah, definitely. I think one last topic I want to discuss before we end this episode would probably be how much accountability we place on men who might have been raised in conservative households. Because while there is also this thing about allegations and stuff, there's also the side of the perpetrator and how much punishment should we give people who may just not have known that they were doing something wrong because it's a systemic problem, right? Yeah. So I guess what I can say here is this this is very much like cancel culture where we have to assume that people might be willing to change their ways and we should give them an opportunity to do that. That being said, I don't think that they should be like forgiven automatically just because they have like a particular background because it's not as if the internet was non-existent for you for the past few years right you had opportunities to educate yourself but you actively did you didn't actively seek out those opportunities but again that might also be because of certain circumstances that were outside anybody's control so i guess just be nuanced about it like yeah. To what extent are they doing this as a result of their own choices? To what extent is this uh, an adaptation of a world that they didn't have a, a choice in, you know, living in? And that, that also brings us to another cute question about... It's a cute, non-controversial question. Why about, is it cute? It's not. I was being sarcastic. Oh, okay. <laughs> a cute, non-controversial question about whether or not sex work is feminist. Because a lot of feminists say that 
choice feminism is a lie actually a lot of people make choices for example to sell the their bodies um in in sex work or um be be phone sex operators those kinds of um only fans yeah those things um a lot of people say that we can't celebrate those choices because it was manufactured these aren't real choices that they're making they weren't 100% autonomous with this they're manipulated into making these choices because of certain circumstances that they were born into that exploited them or seek to exploit them so what do you feel about this do you think that like sex work is work is it not work is it somewhere in the middle well i think it's work um but also i have a very nuanced answer but it's mostly marxist in nature i feel like the fault is on capitalism more than it is a patriarchal issue because women wouldn't have to make this choice if they lived in a situation where they were comfortable economically and monetarily and wouldn't have to even have this in their arsenal of options right but if there are really some people that choose it this is where it gets a little bit tricky like assuming you are a rich individual who doesn't need to have an only fans but you just want to do it for fun or because you like the extra money i would say that it depends right what was your upbringing what are your reasons for wanting this because i would say sometimes that sex work is just like choosing your clothes it doesn't always have to be an oppressed choice like sure it's influenced by factors but it doesn't always have to be a bad thing that it's influenced by stuff right it's just it, it's just what it is that it it's an influenced choice but on the other hand it can be insidiously influenced if you had for example an upbringing that told you you are nothing but your organs or you are nothing but sex work and then somehow you taught yourself reverse psychology and learned to love it and this is called internalized oppression which i think we discussed in like a really really early early episode back when we were starting out i but think this it was episode concept, two yeah like episode two but this concept still applies internalized oppression where you were so used to being oppressed in a particular way that you just decided to roll with it and no longer be a victim to it and just like swallow it up right so that could be another context as well so i would say sex work is work in a sad way like it's sadly work because capitalism forced you to work and because we aren't sure of your like intentions when doing so but i guess the same could be safe could be said for all work like all work is oppressive to some extent right no one really chooses to work so what is the real difference of sex work just because the acts are different yeah so you would agree with um Engels who said that the state that women are living in right now is because of capitalism um instead of anything else so like men were just like we should step on women today it's sort of like capitalism created this culture that you know objectifies women and forces women into these exploitative conditions but i think what should be uncontroversial here is there are a lot of cases where women are coerced mm. if women are coerced we shouldn't accept that like at all no at one all. should be like even the people who are saying that sex work is work when you tell them that well a lot of people are trafficked no one will say that oh okay 
it's okay if they get traffic. No one says that, right? Um, I hope no one says that. I'm pretty sure no one says that. <laughs> but like, you're right. I, I'm not really sure. But probably no one says that. Like, it's not a debatable issue to me. Like, human trafficking is bad. Is something that I feel like I have to say today. Um, because I it should not... It should go without saying that human trafficking is bad. Right, but if there are cases where you're sure that it's not coerced, that's the debatable part. Like, if they are not coerced, is this something that we should be celebrating as a movement? Is this part of the third wave idea of empowerment that we should be celebrating, or is it not? I I would like to start by saying, I guess, for me personally, even if it was someone's choice, there's also the perspective of how it affects everyone else. So to you, it might not be an issue if you yourself are a sex worker and you're enjoying it and it was your choice. But it also, sadly, influences how other people perceive other women. Like you, sadly, as a woman, do not operate alone. That's the fact of second wave feminism, right? And a lot of places, as we've mentioned earlier, are not yet past the first wave or the second wave so you might be empowered but a lot of people still haven't achieved equality so if you empower yourself in this particular way and other people haven't been seen as equal to men they will just see it as an excuse to further bludgeon their own opinions on women who are still struggling with second wave feminism Because you are promiscuous, they will think it's okay to, you know, seduce, uh, not seduce, harass other women because, well, you were willing to be paid. Why can't I pay this other person to strip down in front of me, you know? Yeah. So I I was just thinking, like, what if you bring OnlyFans to a society that isn't done with the first wave of feminism? Like, a society that does not believe that women should have the same political and economic and social rights as men, I think that that would severely harm the development of the feminist movement there. Because like at this point, a lot of men like in those societies are thinking we shouldn't give women too much freedom because if we do, it will cause them to be immoral. So if you bring a fourth wave development like OnlyFans into a pre or first wave society, that's only going to hamper or even significantly damage the development or growth of the feminist movement. Which is why the good framing here is just because you have succeeded in a particular wave or you got a certain victory somewhere else, it doesn't mean that it's okay for you to impose the same standard on the rest of the world. Mm. So again, we, we go full circle. Like You can't just impose your idea of feminism onto everyone else because each society, each culture is at a different stage when it comes to these issues yeah i guess i guess the way i would find a parallel to it would be to say that the waves are like levels you know and it's unfair for example to make a level two opponent fight a level five boss if they're not there yet just because you're at level five and you can manage this boss like sure you're not winning yet but you're managing you shouldn't expect other women who are still level 2 to be able to do what you're doing in the same way you're doing it. So basically, women are like video games charm. I'm kidding. <laughs> That's like a Plot really bad takeaway. Yeah, I'm the one who's gonna be cancelled this episode. Plot um, 
Yeah, but like I think that's a good parallel. But don't oversimplify it, our listeners. Please don't. I hope you understood all the nuances we provided the past hour. But I think that's it for this discussion. There's a lot that we could still be discussing about feminism, but I think we did a pretty good overview of all or most issues. I don't think it's possible to cover all issues. New ones pop up every day, more nuanced ones, more broad ones, etc. But that's it for this episode of Debatable. Thank you so much for listening. Once again, belated happy International Women's Day. And we hope if you're a woman, that you're having a great one. And if you're a man, that you're having a really... Respectful really good one, one as well. <laughs> like a You're really respectful a, yeah. one. Yes. <laughs> Bye. Bye-bye.